Well, my name is Tim Cargus, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in a series called Out of the Wilderness. And so at some point, all of us are going to travel through some type of wilderness in our lives. And it feels like maybe a physical or emotional or spiritual wasteland if you've been through it. It's barren. It's difficult to find life there. And you can't wait to get out, right? And so if you are in the wilderness right now, we as a church want to walk alongside you. Because in the wilderness, all of us need to cling to two things. We need to cling to something that is good, and we need to cling to something that is true. Something true and something good. Because if, if something is true, but it's not good, then it causes despair. And if something is good, but it isn't true, then it causes a kind of a false sense of hope. And so both despair and a false sense of hope are devastating and maybe even deadly in the wilderness. So we want to cling to something that is good and something that is true. And so this week, we're in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9. And for many people, when you read through Genesis 6 to 9, it causes us to wonder some questions, right? Is this true? And if it's true, is God good? So th this is the biblical narrative, if you're familiar with it, that is describing the later years of Noah, his family, the ark that he builds, and the flood. It's a famous story. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read every word of Genesis 6 through 9 right now, but I want to highly encourage you to read it on your own. Even if you've read this a hundred times before or already know what's going to happen, read it again. Why? Well, the, the Bible is designed to be meditated on. It's not going to reveal everything the first time you go through it. And so you're going to notice things that maybe you've never noticed before when you reread a passage. And the Bible is also designed to be read in community. So if you aren't in a group of, of some kind, a life group, uh, we are going to start another rooted group coming up in the end of February, so be on the lookout for that. But the Bible is designed to be read in community with others. So today, we're going to look at Noah and the flood. <clears throat> so here we go. Well, again, likely you already know this story. So to set it up before we get here, Adam and Eve are tempted and they stumble over forbidden fruit. And then Cain, their son, is tempted, and he stumbles over the fruit of the ground. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 9, Noah is tempted, and he stumbles over the fruit of the vine. Fruit. So these are, these are the bookends of our narrative here. And so Adam and Eve, they took what looked good in their eyes. They wanted to define good and evil on their own. They wanted to become like God. And then Cain takes this desire to the extreme, right? And Cain is the first murderer. And God warns him that the sin of the serpent is crouching at his door, and he needs to rule over it. But Cain doesn't listen. And the blood of Abel, it cries out to God when Abel is killed. And so then Cain, he starts this city. And this city starts on a foundation of sin, and then generations later, sin has infiltrated society at every level. 
and then one of Cain's ancestors, Lamech, he boasts about murder. A man wounded him, and so it seemed good to Lamech to just kill him. And then Lamech wasn't satisfied with his one wife, and so another woman looks good in his eyes, and so he is the first to take two wives. And then abuse happens, and so this land is filled with murder and with corruption and with abuse. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Imagine the cries of those who were slain that went up to God. And this this spiral of sin, it it continues, and then really it culminates in Genesis chapter 6. And so if you've read ahead, there is a really strange little section right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and it talks about the sons of God. And it says, the sons of God thought that the, the daughters of men, they, they looked good in their eyes. And so they took them, right? And these women, they became pregnant and they bore the Nephilim, these mighty men of old. And now we don't have all the time to get into the details, but the, the sons of God are likely fallen angels. They are likely demons who, who possessed wicked men and then impregnated these women in the land. And so in Genesis 3.15, you're going to remember that God promised that the offspring of Eve was going to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. So do you think Satan is just going to sit around and wait for this promise to be fulfilled? Of course he's not. So his followers, his demons, they they take these daughters of men, these offspring of Eve, and they seek to corrupt them. They seek to ruin the future seed, to ruin the offspring of Eve, and and to, to corrupt them to the point that maybe the chosen one won't be able to come. And then eventually God has had enough of this. And he says, that's, that's it. And he predicts that in 120 years, the lives of these people will come to an end. Now, the wording is strange. In, in Genesis 6-3, it almost sounds like the Lord is limiting a lifespan, right, of humans. His days shall be 120 years. But, but the writer of Genesis isn't incompetent. And we know just a few chapters later, we see humans that are living longer than 120 years. So what God is doing here is he is predicting when the flood is going to happen. And so Noah is 500 years when his sons are born. And then God tells Noah to build this massive ark, right? It's it's like the size of a small cruise ship. And and he doesn't tell him when all of this is going to go down. He just tells him what to do. And so then Noah gets gets to work and he has to wait for more than a hundred years before the rain starts. And then finally, God sends the animals and it fills the ark and he tells Noah and his family to get in and it rains for 40 days and nights and it it kills everything. There's water from below the earth that comes up and there's water from above. And so for 150 days, Noah and, and his family and the animals in the ark, they float on the water. And then the waters recede for another 150 days, right? And then Noah and the animals and his family, they all get to get off the boat. They've been on the boat for a year. And then Noah gets out, and the first thing he does is he makes a sacrifice to God. What a powerful scene. And then God accepts it. And this is sort of like this this beautiful recreation moment. And language from early Genesis is used, be fruitful and multiply. And God makes a covenant here with, with Noah. It's, it's sort of a, it's a reset of creation. 
But if you've read this, you might wonder, is God good? He brings a flood that kills everyone except for these eight individuals. <laughs> what is that about, right? There was an ancient Greek philosopher named uh, Epicurus. He looks really pleasant. Um, <clears throat> he was born 300 years before the birth of Christ. And Epicurus, he has this famous argument against God. And he questions the goodness and he questions the power of God. And he says that either God wishes to take away all of the evil in the world, but is unable to, so he's not all-powerful, or he is capable and able to take away all of the evil in the world, but he's unwilling to do so. In which case, God is malevolent. And so there was a philosopher, David Hume, in the 1800s who kind of warmed over this argument, and there have been other prominent atheists who have taken this up in recent years as an indictment on God's character, on his goodness, and on his ability to be just and to apply mercy. And if, if God is good, then why doesn't he take away all of the evil? So Epicurus, he had, he had followers uh, called Epicureans, and, and these people were hedonists. And so Epicurus taught that whatever is pleasurable is good. Whatever is painful is evil. Wait a minute, what, what is he doing here? He's, he's redefining good and redefining evil on his own terms. Does that, does that sound familiar? The fruit looked good, so they ate it. The problem with Epicurean logic is one person's pleasure may cause another person pain. One, one person may end up abused so that another person can experience pleasure. Well, what is evil in this case? Is, it the, is the abuser evil? Well, he's only taking pleasure because it looks good in his eyes. So according to Epicurus, he isn't doing an evil. But then his victims experience pain, tremendous pain, which is evil. So if everyone follows this Epicurean logic, right, then, then everyone just does whatever looks good in their own eyes. They define good and evil on their own terms. They forcibly take pleasure as often as they can get it because pleasure is good. And then they prevent pain as often as possible because pain is evil. And what does a society look like when this Epicurean logic prevails? Well, coincidentally, it looks exactly like what the ancient world did prior to Genesis 6. So what is God supposed to do with this? Genesis 6, 5 to 8 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Is God good? Well, here it, it grieved the Lord in his heart that every intention within the heart of the people that he created on earth was evil. The wickedness here is so great in this land 
And, and God grieves. And so if you've been through grieving, grieving is, is, a, is a painful experience. It's, it's mourning. And so the Lord is mourning the state of the earth at that time. It caused him pain. He is hurting here for those who hurt. And so many people cried out for justice. The blood of the land was literally crying out to God. All of the victims of murder from this time were crying out to God. And so if God does nothing, he is not good. So something had to be done. But is it good to wipe out everyone except for eight? What if some of those people that he wiped out were good or had a chance to be good in the future? Later in Genesis, Abraham is asked, or Abraham asked God if God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were even 10 good people left there, even 10. And God said he would, he, w- he would spare them. Though Adam and Eve deserved to die, they didn't. Though Cain deserved to die, he doesn't. God, God is the creator of life. This is something that I think we conveniently forget at times. God is a creator of life, and we are literally dust without him. He breathes life into us. Life is his. Life is not ours. And so God could be malevolent here. He is the creator. He can do whatever he wishes. He could be vindictive. He could be exploitive, like various depictions of other ancient gods. Nothing is forcing God to be good. No one is forcing God to be good. No one is more powerful than God. No one forces God to be good. The only thing binding God to being good is the fact that goodness is literally built into the fabric of his character. He can't help but be good. It's against his nature to be anything but he, he cannot be tempted by evil. And so his plans are always going to be good. They're always going to be righteous. But part of being good is being just. And so the narrative of Noah, it sort of flies in the face of this Epicurean logic, right? Does God know that evil is happening in the world? Yes. Does God care about the evil that is happening in the world? Clearly, he does. His heart is grieved here. Is God willing to do something about it? Well, he is. He's going to start over. It'll be a a, a sort of a cosmic reset, right? Like a a cosmic decreation. And does God do something about the evil in the world? He does, in this case, in Genesis 6 through 9. But everything that is evil is destroyed. So, so the real question for ancient and modern Epicureans who ask why God doesn't just eliminate all the evil in the world is, are you sure you want him to? Because if God eliminates all the evil in the world, guess what? He would have to destroy it. Evil has stained everything, even the very ground of the earth. And so the blood of the innocent cries out to God from there. And so do you really want God to deal with all of the evil in the world? Because it has happened before and it didn't go so well for the people who are following this Epicurean logic or or the logic of the serpent. They all died. And, and so you, you can't take what you think is good in your eyes and define what you think is good and then assume that God is not good for washing away evil in the flood. But, but what about all the people that died, right? Well, 
God is actually merciful to them. They had over 100 years, at least, to repent. Over 100 years. They literally don't have an excuse. There is a giant carnival cruise ship that is built by an old man and his sons in the middle of this region. You can't tell me that that wasn't the most famous story in the land. People likely ridiculed Noah and his family. No one had seen a cataclysmic flood before. And so they, they belittle Noah's commitment to God. They mock him. And then God goes as far as even giving those people, everyone else except for Noah's family, he gives them seven days. So the animals and Noah and his family are on the boat for seven days, and the door is open, right? And God is the only one who can close that door. And he gives them seven days. They could have jumped on the boat at any moment, and God leaves it open, and these people have a chance, but they don't take it. So is God good? Well, he's, he's the very definition of good. But, but if he is good, why is Noah in the wilderness? So our first question here, number one, how does, God, how does Noah enter the wilderness? Well, Noah is blameless. Noah is righteous. Noah obeys God. Adam and Eve and Cain, they disobeyed God, right? And so their entrance into the wilderness, I think, makes sense to us. Because I think, in general, we understand crime and punishment. You do a crime, you receive a punishment. Well, Noah didn't do any crime, and yet he's still doing the time, right? The, the, the wilderness existed around him. He isn't there because of something that he did. He is there because of things that others did. And so, ultimately, Noah is in the wilderness due to the state of the world, The world around him is wicked and evil, and Noah can't avoid the wilderness because he's part of the world. The world would have to be cleansed before Noah could leave. And that's not fair, right? It's not fair to enter the wilderness when we haven't done anything wrong. It's not. And so if it's not fair, does that mean that God isn't good? Well, first... Is there, is there anything that is unfair but still good? How about grace? How about mercy? Is it, is it fair to receive or to give the gift of grace? It's absolutely not fair. Grace is getting a gift that we don't deserve. It's not fair. Is it fair to receive or give mercy? Mercy is not getting something that we deserve, and mercy is not fair. Both grace and mercy are good And both of those are invented by God. Second, where do we get our sense of morality? Where where does our moral compass come from? How how do we know what is good or what is evil, what is fair, what is unfair, what is just, what is unjust? Where does this sense of morality come from? Let's say hypothetically that we live in a society without God that is built on survival and, and built on defining what is good in our own eyes, in our own terms. Is abuse in this society morally wrong? Well, in that type of society, you might feel it necessary to abuse someone to suit your needs. And so in that sense, abuse wouldn't be wrong. It would be practical. It would benefit your survival. But no one thinks like that. And thank goodness that we don't live in a hypothetical society like that. Because somehow in every society in the world throughout history, abuse has always been wrong. 
there is a moral absolute. There, there's, a, there's an old song that uses the quote, the shadows prove the, sunrise, the sunshine. The shadows prove the sunshine. So how do we know what is good? How do we know what is evil? If, if everything was shadow, we would have no understanding of light. And if everything was light, we would have no understanding of shadows. So as it is, the shadows prove that light exists. In the same way, the presence of evil points to the presence of good. If there was no good, there'd be no evil. No, no, one, no one would even think about committing evil because no one would be complaining when evil was committed because good doesn't exist. And so the fact that we know something is evil points to the fact that something is good. Because all of us innately know when evil happens. When something wrongs us, we all know that that is an evil. And some deny it, but there is an absolute morality that exists. There is a moral standard. Even atheists will agree that child abuse is evil. Racism is evil. Murder is evil. Why do we all know this? Because there is a giver of good. There is one who has established what is good and established what is evil. He is the embodiment of good itself. He spoke the world into existence, and what did he say after each day? It is good. So I think there's a desire in all of us to, in every heart, to kind of go back to a paradise state like the garden, to go back to something that is good. We all have that desire in us. But then evil begins when Satan wants to redefine what is good and to take what looks good in his eyes. And so now that same evil desire crouches at the door of our hearts wanting to rule over us. But God is good. So, but if God is good, is this story true? Okay, so uh, maybe you're tracking with me here that uh, God is good, but maybe you have struggled with this story. You've wondered if it's true, right? And if, that, if that's you, I get it. Man, people have debated this for centuries. And again, if this is a really big struggle for you, I would encourage you to seek answers. Keep pulling on that thread. People way more intelligent than me have been working on this for years. Uh, scientists and theologians and historians and archaeologists. And so I've come through a lot of the data just to kind of answer my own intellectual curiosity and to satisfy my own uh, intellectual uh, wants for this particular story. And so I am, uh, by nature, curious, and I also am sympathetic to skeptics. So I want to pursue the truth as far as truth can be pursued. And if this is a false narrative, I want to know. If someone made this up, I want to know. And so after doing my own research for me, one of the most compelling reasons, actually the most compelling reason, that the flood actually happened is that Jesus said it did. And we're going to look at that passage here in a minute. But honestly, the only reason I'm standing up here is because of a life-changing encounter with Jesus that happened in a dorm room in Kearney, Nebraska years and years ago. And then numerous encounters with Jesus since and everything changed for me when I surrendered my life to Christ. And, and so if Jesus speaks on a subject, I want to listen. And last week we talked about interpreting the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. And this week we're going to take one step further and we want to interpret everything through the eyes of Christ. And so that's primary for me. There's, there's a lot of secondary evidence that I could share. 
But one, one piece of evidence that, that intrigues me is the fact that there are so many ancient flood narratives and accounts across numerous cultures. Uh, there's a, a commentator, David Guzik, he comments on this, and he says that there are groups like the legends of the Samokubo tribe, and I'm going to mispronounce these, so I apologize, of New Guinea, the uh, Athapascan Indians of America, the Papago Indians of Arizona, Brazilian tribes, Peruvian Indians, African Hottentots, the natives of Greenland, native uh, Hawaiian Islanders, Hindus, Chinese, Egyptians, Greeks, Persians, Australian natives, the Welsh, Celts, Druids, Siberians, and Lithuanians. So of the more than 200 cultures that have their own account of the flood, the following aspects of the story are uncommon. And this is interesting to me. 88% of all of these accounts describe a favored family. 70% attribute survival to a boat. 95% say the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. 66% say that the, the disaster is due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals are also saved. And then 57% describe that the survivors end up on a mountain. Now, many of these accounts also mention birds, and they mention a rainbow and eight, per, eight people being saved. So later in Genesis, in Genesis 11, God scatters people and they develop their own language. They go to different parts of the world. And so many of these places and language in languages have their own account of the flood narrative. And so this is an event that likely would have been memorable, obviously, and then passed down through generations. Now, is this undeniable proof? Well, no, it's not. But it is interesting. And, and there have been some ancient historians who have said as early as the second century that you can still find remains of the boat on Mount Ararat. So it may have still been visible as petrified wood for centuries after the flood. Now, the, the Creation Research Institute and Answers in Genesis, they have a lot more information if you're interested in finding out any more about this. But is God good? And is this true? If the answer to both are yes, what does that mean? Well, Matthew 24, 36 to 39, Jesus here is talking about when he is going to come back. So Jesus comes first in humility as a human child, but then later he's going to return in glory and power. He's going to usher in a new age. And so this is what he says in, in Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, till the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, it sounds like... This was an actual event, according to Jesus. And so if God is good, and if this is true, then if you are not walking with the Lord, now's the time to get right with him. Because a future cosmic flood-like moment is coming, and evil is going to be dealt with. And those following Jesus get to be like Noah, starting over in a brand new place but one that has been washed clean. It will be paradise, the Garden of Eden 2.0. You are going to want to be there. But for those of you who are not following Jesus, the door of the ark 
is going to be closed. You're given 100 years, give or take, to follow Jesus. And if you reject him, that's it. You, you, you likely aren't going to think that that day is going to come. Oh, Jesus maybe never is going to come back. And yet he will. And someday that door is going to close. And you were out eating and you were out drinking and you are out doing whatever looked good in your eyes. But now it's too late and time is up. But Jesus wants all of us to come. Our vessel of salvation is not found in the whole of chopped timbers on the ark, but is found in the heart of one who is nailed to the intersection of chopped timbers on a cross. The door of the ark remains open for seven days, but the arms of Christ remain open until he returns. Don't wait. Noah is the first to offer a sacrifice that is not just for him, but is for many. This is a pattern that is repeated in Scripture. One for many. One can substitute for many. On behalf of his family, Noah offers the sacrifice of animals before the Lord and then the waters, uh, after the waters recede on Mount Ararat. And so the Lord is pleased with this offering, and he makes a covenant with Noah and all future generations right there. And so the one sacrifice, it covers multiple generations. Where else does this happen? Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He will crush the head of the serpent. Did you catch that? For a By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So Noah starts this one for many, but now it's Christ offering one sacrifice on the behalf of many. And so instead of animals, he places himself on the altar, and God accepts this sacrifice. And man, I'm so thankful that he did, because now we get to enter into a new covenant, a new covenant agreement with God. And so we are living in this new covenant time where the space that needs to be saved is not the land, but our hearts. The area that needs to be washed and regenerated and renewed is not the blood-soaked earth. It is our sin-filled hearts and minds. And God is giving us free access to this open door of salvation. He is saying, repent, be saved, be baptized. And the amazing thing is when we are baptized, it symbolizes Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are buried in the water in the likeness of his death, and then we are raised to new life in the power of his spirit. And that same spirit, it came down from heaven, and and it rested on the shoulders of Jesus like a dove when God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in the flood, we have the earth experiencing a similar renewal, a similar baptism as the waters bury the earth like death, and then as the waters receive, the earth is raised to a new life, and then a dove rests on Noah's ark, returning from finding hope, the hope of dry ground and the symbol of peace in his mouth. Is God good? Is this true? 
Yes, to both. Okay, so we don't have time to go through these, but we're going to put both question two and question three up on the screen for a minute. You can write them down or uh, take a photo for later, whatever works best. So here it is. Number two, what does Noah learn? A couple things that we're not going to discuss. Noah learns to persevere, and Noah learns that God can be trusted. And then number three, what do we learn from Noah? One sacrifice for many, and then God calls us to hard things. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But let's, let's go to number four. How does Noah exit the wilderness? Well, he, he trusts and obeys God. But Noah doesn't get to decide when he leaves. God makes the call. So, so far we have two ways to get into the wilderness, right? We have sin and we have the state of the world. We have two ways to get into the wilderness, sin and the state of the world. And only one way so far to get out. And that's to trust and obey God. We're going to look at more as we continue this series. Now, Noah is the first one to actually exit, to actually get out of the wilderness so far that we've looked at. And Noah is in the wilderness for 601 years. And then he leaves as a sort of new Adam. Maybe he's the chosen one, right? He's, he's done everything right so far until he gets drunk. The fruit, man. Fruit trips up yet another human. And so the story continues. And so next week, we're going to look at Abraham and Isaac. Are are you kidding me with that story? And so join me next week as we look at that. But before we close, I want to encourage you. If you're in the wilderness right now, man, there is hope for you. You may not be there because of something that you did. You might be there because of the condition of the world around you. But just like Noah, God might give you a calling in the wilderness. He might ask you to do something in the wilderness. And if God asks you to do something, or maybe he asks you to give up something, it's likely not going to be an easy task. It's going to be a God-sized task. What are you going to do with whatever God gives you in the wilderness? Are, Are you going to follow through with what God asks? Or are you just hoping to get through the wilderness as soon as possible so you'll do anything and say anything so that you can expedite your exit from the wilderness? Noah had to wait over 100 years for God's promise of the flood to happen. Are we willing to wait for something good? God is good. So whatever he asks will be good. Whatever the outcome or the calling or the task or the thing that he asks you to do or not to do, it is going to be good. And so if you're asked to give something up, that's going to be good. Why? Because God is good. And so you can cling to that when you are in the wilderness. You can cling to these two things, that God is good and that his word is true. And to God be the glory when you get out of the wilderness. Let's pray. God, uh, man, it's hard in the wilderness. God, and sometimes when we, um, we talk about it or we try to intellectualize it, I worry that it maybe minimizes the pain of being there. And so I want to acknowledge that right now. God, for the people that I know that they are in a season of the wilderness and they're wondering when they get to get out 
because it's not where they want to be. There's hardship there. There's suffering. So God, while we're, while we're there, help us to cling to what is good and to what is true. Help us to build our lives on a foundation that is not based on whatever we think is good in our own eyes, but it's based on your goodness and on your truth. God, God, this foundation is not shaky, it's solid. And so for those who are experiencing doubt and despair, meet them there, God. I pray that you'll be right with them as they wrestle and as they, as they, come, as they come to you and they cry out. God, as, as Abel's blood cried out from the ground. God, when we are in the wilderness, we cry out to you and we ask for relief. We ask for help. We ask for hope. And God, I'm so thankful that in my seasons of wandering, in my seasons of being in the wilderness, when I cried out, you were there. And so for all of the, all the people who are dealing with that here right now, God, I thank you that I'm not special, that you offer this to everyone. You offer your presence in profound and powerful ways that can only be you when we experience it. So meet us in our wilderness, God. Speak truth to us. God, there's so many lies that we can get stuck in our heads, and it's confusing. So bring us clarity of mind and purity of heart. Pray this in your name. Amen.